Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. Today, we continue our month-long series of Mountain Talks celebrating Black histories, current realities, and futures in Central Appalachia and beyond. On this episode, we bring you an hour-long radio documentary produced by Michael and Carrie Klein. Game Changer is an interracial account of football as a catalyst for positive change in the merger of two high schools in West Virginia in 1956. The Mountain of Hope Organization, Incorporated, along with the West Virginia Humanities Council and Talking Across the Lines, LLC, are proud to present Game Changer, an interracial account of Mount Hope football as a catalyst for positive change in the merger of two high schools. Between the spring of 2016 and fall of 2017, Talking Across the Lines recorded 40 interviews with former students, black and white, of both W.E.B. Du Bois and Mount Hope High Schools, remembering the development of race relations in the wake of peaceable school integration in the fall of 1956. We were afraid the first day. Betty Brown. We didn't know what to expect, you know, because all the other places throughout the United States, people calling names and throwing rotten eggs at you and standing in the schoolhouse door. But we got off the bus, went into the building, nothing happened. Despite televised images of National Guard troops escorting frightened children through jeering crowds at the time, the students and teachers in this New River coal town forged a more tolerant path toward interracial living and learning. Following the dissolution of W.E.B. Du Bois High to make way for the Mount Hope High School, Many recall the freshly consolidated black and white Mount Hope football team as a symbol of success and hope. Athletics bridges economic differences. It bridges ethnic and racial differences because people come together for one common purpose. Brenda Troitino, an energetic majorette of the 1966 championship team and a booster ever since, cherishes her memories of Mount Hope as a football town. Oh, shoot. Monday through Thursday night's entertainment was to go watch football practice. She has never lost the spirit of the mighty Mustangs, which drove the team and its followers to victory in multiple state championships. Years after the closing of the high school in 2011, the team chant lives on in a song celebrating this determined spirit. We are the Mustangs, the mighty, mighty Mustangs. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are. So we tell them. It's Friday night in the old hometown. Get your ticket at the stadium and sit right down. Mount Hope wins the toss and they'll receive. They'll keep you cheering till it's time to leave. That's our team. The action on the field used to give us all a thrill The spirit of the Mustangs with us Thursday night was always the pep rally Everybody turned out for that and then Friday night, you couldn't have got a pin in between people in those stands. Willie Ben Pritchett. 
The only time you really mingled was at the football stadium. Everybody, you know, co-mingled up there. You know, everybody played, and that's what brought a lot of people together was the sports, the football field. Brenda Hyman Jackson. Friday night and, you know, the bands playing and the majorettes are marching and, you know, and you're under the lights at the football game. So that was that was a really exciting time. Fran Birdsong. You would go to ball games and everyone came, all walks of life. We have a beautiful stadium and it's in the shape of a bowl. So everybody had a good view. The football team helped the town accept integration. That was something this town could be proud of, black or white. My name is Michael Klein, and this is my friend Jack Spadaro. He has been the driving force behind this memory preservation project. That's the kind of story that I'm so interested in telling even further. Nearly 70 years ago, he was homegrown and hard to stop on the football field. The other thing that happened was you began playing together outside of school, before integration, and you would go in a mixed-race group to the strip mines, the abandoned strip mines, where there was a pool of water that you could go swimming in together. (laughs) In his adult years as a federal mine inspector, he's been hard to stop in his determination to protect West Virginia land, water, and people. Bernice Clayton perceived even as a youngster that racial issues seemed to trickle down from the older generation. She and her playmates didn't dwell on differences or derogatory talk. If we weren't in school and we were out in the community playing, we played with each other. There wasn't to us any difference. But I think it all was different to grown people. We didn't hear a lot of name-calling amongst ourselves. We didn't do a lot of it, and neither did the kids we were playing with. And you would go and have pickup basketball games or pickup baseball games. And it was mixed. It was an interracial mix. So you started playing together. All those divisions that might exist go away over time because you start to understand each other and not be afraid of each other. You're not taught to be afraid of each other. I was born in my grandmother's house. My mother's name is Juanita McKinney. And I grew up at the place in Mount Hope, we call it up in the holler. Charles McKinney and Jerry Adams were children together in an isolated neighborhood of Mount Hope. Jerry loved his childhood afternoons at his grandparents' home along a road paved with burned coal cinders off a slag heap. Much of what I remember growing up, I had spent a lot of time with my grandparents, my mother's mom and dad. His name is Roy, Roy Jackson. This is the gentleman that worked at the New River Machine Shop, again, coal business, repairing different machines, welding, those types of things. My step-grandmother lived up on the hill with my grandfather, Roy. Her name was Elsie. Mom would drop me off with my grandparents when I was young, and even when I went to school, at elementary school, I would get out of school, walk up to the hill to my grandparents, and I would stay there till Mom got off work. And uh, you can get an idea of what a hollow is. <laughs> it was just a road, a dirt road, with trees and bushes on both sides of the hill. Charles McKinney. And uh, there were houses on both sides of the hill. 
We also had our church that was sit on a hill up in the hollow, and it was called the Glorious Church. David Rhodes, another playmate from up in the hollow, remembers the power and beauty of Sunday morning congregational singing issuing from the Glorious Church. Down below us in the hollow, or down on the very bottom of the hill, was a road named Kessler Hollow. And often Charles and I would play down in that area. His grandmother lived over the hill. There was a church next to his grandmother's house. And every Sunday, the services went on all day. You could hear the music. think of my grandparents, well, they just live on the Red Dog Road. Now, Red Dog was okay, but, you know, for young kids, you couldn't ride a bicycle. <laughs> you couldn't roller skate. And uh, when you're out there with your tennis shoes, it would kind of eat them up because it was so sharp. And there are only about a half a dozen houses on that little Red Dog Road. I was the only black that lived up in that part of the town. Charles McKinney. The hollow up on the hill. I lived in the last house, and I played with uh, everybody up there. None of the families, none of the kids had a black or white issue. You know, we, uh, we all played together, the mothers, the fathers. They all treated me and my family like we were the same, and really we were. Well, I discovered early that two boys up there my age, little old kids. Jerry Adams. One lived right next to my grandparents, and his name was Mickey Plumley. But we grew up together on the same street, and the street that we lived on was paved with Red Dog. Mickey Plumley. Red Dog was a crust rock that they would pave roads with instead of using asphalt. And that's how we toughened ourselves up, is we would play sports at a very young age on a rock field. So that, you know, when you got tackled, it really hurts if you did your best not to get tackled. <laughs> The one thing we all had in common was that we were all poor. I mean, just dirt. Well, I don't want to use the word poor. We were all economically underprivileged. So, got to be friends with Mickey. But at the end of the Red Dog Road, there was a family there, the McKinneys. Well, we know who that is. That's baby Charles. His mom called him baby Charles. You go out and yell for baby Charles, and so we picked it up, and it was always baby Charles. Charles and I grew up on the same street. We've been friends now for 65 years. We first became friends when we were four years old. He lived three houses down the street from me. And, of course, baby Charles was African-American, lived at the end of the road, and their house wasn't quite as nice as the rest of them. None of us had a whole lot. These houses that my grandparents lived in, they were maybe 800 square foot at most, a couple bedrooms, and a kitchen that had a table in it. That was it. That's all they had. It's still there today. It's North Mountain Avenue is where the road is. But anyway, so Mickey lived right next door, so that was good. At the end of the road, of course, we had baby Charles and, and his brothers and sisters. Jerry Adams and Charles McKinney would have sleepovers in grade school. You know, there was a mixed race sleepovers, which would be virtually unheard of in those days, you know. Jack Spadaro has always been fascinated by how inclusive his little town of Mount Hope was. 
From his earliest memories, its main street was crowded with shoppers, old guys sharing local gossip, and kids dashing about with destinations of their own. The air was full of cheery greetings and the sounds and smells of congested traffic. Shoulders brushed as pedestrians of many complexions and ethnicities engaged with one another on the street. At the time of school integration, public housing in Mount Hope was still segregated, as were both movie theaters, all churches, and some restaurants in town. You had the Stadium Terrace, where it was two sections. They had the white section, where only white could live, and then they had the black section, where the blacks could live. That was up right by the stadium. And that's why they called them the Stadium Terrace. In the early 1960s, I'd say around 63, 64, they began integrating those projects. In such a layered setting, peaceable school integration happened without taunting crowds, police escorts, and burning crosses, though crosses were burned on other occasions. Neighborhoods in town butted up against one another, and children found and shared close interracial friendships outside of school in the shadow of lingering discrimination. And I asked Jerry Adams once why that happened with him, and he said, my mom grew up in the projects, and her neighbors were black in the stadium terrace of Mount Hope. And that's why his mom was not afraid of black people, and in fact encouraged Jerry to have black friends. It was okay. Jerry Adams and baby Charles McKinney, they grew up together, just like I grew up with a lot of the black guys from Glen Jean. Sam Pugh's experience growing up in nearby Glen Jean suggests that the occurrence of interracial friendships didn't stop at the Mount Hope town line. We recorded similar accounts in a number of coal camps surrounding Mount Hope. We knew our skin was a different color, but we were still like brothers. We got along. We spoke highly of each other. We still do to this day. Mr. Jackson, who was Jerry's grandfather, they always included me into their fishing trips and camping trips that they went on because I had never been on a camping trip and stayed overnight and sleeping in the same sleeping bag with a white guy. You know, that was, that was awesome to be. And I look back on those times. Every summer I was there all day. We did a lot. Mom would drop me off in the summer with baby Charles and make him. We played baseball on that Red Dog Rock Road with a stick as a bat and a crumpled up carnation milk can as a ball. You know, when you're in the mountains, you do things. So again, it's in the forest and you're building a tree house and you'll find a, a wide spot. You know, you could buy a paper kite for about 10 cents, get some rags, tie some long tails on those, and get some strings. Of course, they always ended in the trees. And so that was a lot of our time. Also, there was one field up there that was kind of a grassy field and didn't have that many trees and somewhat uh, elevated. So if you get a cardboard box of an appliance, we're sliding down that hill. And right down from the church, as you're going out the hollow was the elementary school that I went to, which was called the Du Bois Elementary School. Charles McKinney. And, of course, there was no whites in that school. It was all black. And then you went from the primer, then the first, through the sixth grade. And then from the sixth grade, we would go uptown to the junior high school into the seventh grade. It had been integrated. It was black and white there in the junior high school. They knew the black teachers when they got up there, so that helped. Rose Payne was grateful for the black teachers who provided a measure of continuity for African-American students. 
first in the integrated middle school and later in the high school. We had black teachers mixed. We got to the high school also. So it wasn't like we were separated and thrown into an all-white school. But on the other side of the junior high school, there also was an elementary school, which was a white school. Charles McKinney. That's where most of the white kids went, and you had a few of the black kids that went to the elementary school where the white kids went. But we all learned to get along. The football team, we played in it. We had band and everything. That's one thing about Mount Hope. We all got along at school. I actually got into the high school band in the eighth grade. I was a trumpet player. You know, that was quite a challenge. I was the littlest guy in the band. I was tiny. Scott Vargo, class of 1966, was an outstanding Oak Hill educator in his professional life. That was a great experience for me. Nathan Shelton brought a guitar on the bus uh, just about every trip. Awesome guy. Wrote a lot of his own music and great singer. And we sang all the way to football games and all the way back home from football games. When the stars we look upon to tumble and fall all the mountains to crumble to the sea No, I won't be afraid No, I won't be afraid Not alone as you stand Stand by me. He added a lot of perk. He played a bass horn in the band. Yeah, well, the band experience in high school was my best lived experiences. Nathan Shelton. I got to travel, you know, because we went to all the football games. When I went to audition for the band, at the beginning of the school year, it was the 10th grade, I wanted to play saxophone. And unbeknownst to me, the school did not supply a saxophone. So the band director said, well, if you don't have your own horn, say, I need a, I need a tuba. Play. I said, I'll take it. The tuba was bigger than me. <laughs> okay. But I just wanted in that band so bad. If you look at the uh, 65, 66 yearbook, you'll see the tuba. And under that tuba is me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> My mother would not allow me to play football because I had work to do at home. Charles McKinney. I had to feed the chickens. I had to, you know, slop the hogs. My chores took up a lot of my time after school, and she wouldn't allow me to play football. But when we did get a chance to play, like on Saturdays, we would all meet up at the football field, and we played football. And we would play there until... The people came and they would run us off the field so that we're not supposed to be here. You know, we were all black, climbed the fence over on the football field, and somebody would call the cops and say some black boys up there playing on the football field. And the, the cops would come and run us off the football field. Foreigners were discriminated against in the United States, a lot like the black people were discriminated against. Brenda Troitino. And in the coal camps in this area... White people lived in one section, the foreign people lived in another section, and the black people lived in a third section. Mount Hope in Fayette County is comprised of a lot of people who came from other parts of the world. Brenda Vargo. My dad was a Kennedy, 
and he was English. Johnny Bull is what he used to say. That's what they used to call him. And Mother was a, a Dago, a WAP, Italian, because that's the vernacular they used. Brenda Troitino. My heritage is Spanish and Italian. My mother's parents immigrated from Italy, and my father came to the United States on December the 7th, 1941, as Pearl Harbor was being bombed. He had just escaped fascism. His family lived in the northwestern part of Spain, and as a young man, he worked in a stone shop in Madrid, which was quite a distance from his home. And that's when the revolution broke out in Spain. And he fought against Franco. When the war was over, he had to make his own way to come to the United States. So I think that a lot of the people from this area learned that the only way you're going to survive is for everybody to work together. There was no line of demarcation in the coal mines. When everybody came out of the mines anyway, they were all black. Generations that came here from Europe had seen discrimination when they got here because they weren't actual quote-unquote Americans that came over here with the pilgrims. That's why this area didn't see a lot of problems as far as blacks and whites living and working together. I'll never forget Jerry Adams and myself, along with Mickey Plumley, who was white, and David Rhodes, who was white, we got together, and basically we grew up together. Charles McKinney. They went to the grade school, uh, up where the grade school people went. I went to Dubois, but after the evening was over with, we all would come home, and we would play together. You know, a lot of my time was spent down in Kessler Hollow. David Rhodes. We played marbles. Baby Charles was always better than me. He would usually get my best marbles, you know. He would win them, and I'd try to win them back, and we spent a lot of time up in the woods and go for a walk up on the hill above the house. You know, if, if there was snow on the ground, you'd go sleigh riding. If it was warm, you'd play stickball, you played marbles. We were just kids having a good time. Richard Eubanks didn't live long enough to tell his own story as a star black athlete, but many players black and white recall his pressing them to join the school sports teams. Richard had came to me and says, uh, I want you to go off for football. Charles McKinney. So I told him, I said, well, you know my mom is not going to let me go off for football. So he says, I tell you what, you just tell her you're going to be a water boy for a couple of hours, you know. That's how long practice lasts, about a couple of hours. So, so I said, okay. So me and him went to my mother and told my mother that we're going to be water boys. And that's how I got on the football team. Tom Brown. Dubois High School was the school for the black students for this whole area, from Fayetteville through Mount Hope. Kathleen Scott. I became a cheerleader at Dubois. Seventh grade, I was on the varsity squad. Kathleen Scott remembers the prowess of Du Bois middle and high school athletics in which she was encouraged to participate. That was because of Eunice Fleming, the cheerleader coach. She asked my parents, could I be a cheerleader? So I was the varsity cheerleader at seventh grade. 
as I grew up, I realized Mount Hope had a black high school and a white high school, and they put them together, but it wasn't quite like that. Tom Brown, class of 1973, now heads up the Mount Hope Heritage Center, a high school museum and community meeting place. Tom has a passion for local history, especially memories of the Mount Hope Mustang. Built in 1917, the W.E.B. Du Bois High School exploded one night in 1950 and burned to the ground. The African-American students were housed in makeshift classrooms conducted in storefronts and church basements. When I got there in 1953, we had to have classes in the church, storefront buildings, some temporary buildings, and so forth. Betty Brown. And we'd walk from class to class. The principal's office was in the basement of the church. And then we walked out the street and up to temporary buildings for other classes. In 1954, the Fayette County School Board completed the brand new W.E.B. Du Bois High and opened to the joy of black students and faculty. And though the new school was empty of books or lab equipment, it had a modern cafeteria, sparkling restrooms, and big sunny windows. And it was theirs, at least temporarily. We loved that new building. It was wonderful, state-of-the-art for its time. We had a nice library, but no books. I remember the English teacher taking us there one day, and all there was was a set of encyclopedias and a large unabridged dictionary. Jean Evansmore and Kathleen Scott remember a visit from school board officials at the end of their sophomore year in June 1956 that suddenly changed everything. Over the intercom system, the announcement was made that if you were in 10th grade, which is what I was in, you were to go to the cafeteria. I went to the cafeteria. In comes a white man, E.W. Dunkley. Kathleen Scott. The first thing they said was, some of the students now, next year they won't be coming here. Some will be going over to Oak Hill High School, which was just devastating. When they integrated the segregated schools, they took the Du Bois High School building, and that became Mount Hope High School. If you live this place, you will go to this school and it just went on and on. I asked the question, what do you mean? What do you mean by integrated? They're going to let the white kids and the black kids go to school together. Some of my best friends and my boyfriend at that time, they would be going over to Oak Hill High School. They would not be with me anymore. When we integrated, that was like the world just kind of came apart. Because all these people that you had known for years, people that you'd gone to school with, got sent other places. You got sent to places that were closer to where you lived. So it was, it was kind of, it was just devastating because to many of us, it was a total surprise. Betty Brown. We really didn't like it. We wanted to stay where we were. And we always said, they just want our new, brand new school. Because I tell you, when... The school opened, and they had open house. The whites were saying, oh, they're just going to tear this up. They're not going to take care of it. And, of course, the next year, they integrate 
they take our school, remove the name Du Bois High from it, and slap Mount Hope High on it. Mr. Smith had been on leave the year before, but he came back as a classroom teacher, which was wonderful because he was a brilliant man. And I call it consolidation. People say the two schools were integrated. I call it they consolidated. And that building came about because Du Bois High School, it was destroyed by explosion and fire. The Board of Education knew they had to build a new building. And being aware that integration was coming, they built that building because they knew they were going to have to combine students. So it was top of the line building at that time. Du Bois was no longer in existence. It became Mount Hope. Black students struggled to come to terms with the losses. Here's Rose Payne again. You start out one year and the next year, four schools out, the school is integrated and you're graduating from what you thought was going to be Du Bois and you've got a male high school certificate. You get a brand new school and then you, it's gone. Something to think about, you know. And then having to move and be shipped out of your area to go over to another school. Also, I mean, you're losing your culture, your black culture that you're used to. You get to learn more about your black history in a black school, and then now you don't get that. Once you're integrated, that's almost not even taught mostly. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, an illustrious educator for whom the school was named, spoke to these concerns when he said in 1958, quote, The object of Negro education must be Negro culture, to let no part of our rich experience in this land be lost or die, to preserve our history and experience, our poetry, song, and rhythm, our biography and art, our ancient folkways. This is not an opposition to whites, rather in sympathy and fulfillment. We face the preservation and cultivation of Negro talent, not simply among our rich and well-to-do, but even more among the vast number of our poor and outcast, among those locked by the thousands in our jails and penitentiaries. This newly blended population of students reaching toward an understanding of integration and true equality had few models to draw from. The students, in large part, rose to this challenge and in many ways achieved cohesion in their bonding determination to watch each other's backs, as their fathers did every day with one another despite ethnic and color differences in underground coal mines. Tom Brown. There was no fights, no rivalries, no protests. It was just, there was a time of integration. It was a different time for everybody, I think. Everybody was trying to grasp what integration was, and we were used to separate but equal, which probably wasn't equal, and I think they were proud to be Mount Hope Mustangs. When I got big enough to play football, it was a sport that really brought us together. Charles McKinney. Even in high school, the whites would be on one end of the building. The blacks would be on the other end of the building. But then at 2 o'clock, when the football team went to practice, that was when we began to solidly to come together. Every day. 
thing about the Mustangs that I like, they can kick you just as hard if they're black or white. They hit you high and low and give you quite a spiff. If a white one don't get you, then a black one will. Black and white. Mighty Mustang. The action on the field used to give us all the thrill. The spirit of the Mustangs with us still. that that team coming together, black players and white players, I think that is part of what solidified integration the way it happened here. It wasn't like down south. There wasn't people protesting and forbidding the black students to walk into the building. and uh, th Those things didn't happen here. Brenda Troitino and Tom Brown. We have pictures from the very first yearbook and there are black and whites in the Spanish club and the French club and the band and the chorus. And about that time, Mount Hope probably had a school population of 20% black. Kathleen Scott. I was a cheerleader until the integration of the schools. We were told they had selected the cheerleaders before the school term started. And I was not a cheerleader at all when it became Mount Hope High School. That was something very dear and important to me. And I was very hurt. You know, we were not included. The football players and the basketball players, oh, they were included because Du Bois High School, they were always state champions and everything. They were able to participate. Nathan Shelton. It, it took a while for certain things to take place. Like they allowed blacks to play football, but you couldn't be a cheerleader or a majorette. There was no black cheerleaders or majorettes until my class, in fact, which is eight years later. Two, two of the ladies in my class became cheerleaders. They had not been allowed. Certain things you weren't allowed to do. A friend of mine who went to Du Bois, she was telling me the story, man, and was crying. Because she said she wanted to be a cheerleader so bad, and they integrated the year that she went to high school. That was the year they integrated. And her heart was set on being a cheerleader, and they wouldn't let her because she was black. You know, certain things had to come later. The most of the team was black. Charles McKinney. Even the track team, the basketball team. And, and you would wonder, well, why wasn't there a black majorette? Or why there wasn't a black cheerleader? And you wonder that. You know, some of us really didn't want to toss gasoline on a partially burning fire. But then you had others that was very outspoken and they saw a need. And one of the guys, his name is Willie Ben Pritchett. He was one of the committee persons that went to the principal to find out why we didn't have a black cheerleader. And they went and they addressed this issue with the principal. Willie Ben Pritchett. I mean, the guys in the football team, you know, we, we, we were not happy that we didn't have a, a, a black cheerleader. Yeah. I mean, we were not happy, you know, about that. They was having a little congregation here in front of the principal's office with, with Mr. Danner. He was the principal at the time to, to talk to him about a, having a black cheerleader. He says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to let five of y'all come into my office, but I guarantee the five that walk in here will not graduate. And that's the way most things went down. They put the fear in you. So to stop you from 
from standing up for yourself, they put fear in you. But then sometimes, you know, sometimes you got to take a stand. Well, I step forward, okay? I got a 3.68 TPA. You know, I'm on the football team, I'm on the track team and everything. When I'm in the glee club, stop me from graduating. So five of us stepped forward and went into his office. And his first statement was, you people are like dogs. You pat them on the head and they'll lick you in the mouth every time. And that didn't go over with a couple of people in that group. It, it, no, nobody swung in the punches, but we had to hold one of them back to stop him from throwing punches. Got to discuss, and he said, well, we're going to talk to the band director at the time. They were going to get together and with the faculty, and they were going to try to find a black cheerleader. That was in 64, my senior year. You can't fight every battle. you got to pick your battles. Sometimes you know, you know when wrong is wrong, and you say, okay, this one I got to fight. Snapshot of the future, see it so clear. People still struggling because they live in fear. And out of that meeting, we got our first black cheerleader. Her name was Sandra Williams. Mr. Danner called me into the office and asked me if I wanted to be a cheerleader. And it sort of took me back because I'm saying, why me? You know, like that. Because I was sure there was somebody else that could probably do a better job. That was my feeling at the time. Usually with cheerleading, you have to try out for it. And I didn't have to try out. I just became a cheerleader. (laughs) In hindsight, I said, I wonder why I was chosen Was it because of the color of my skin and they wouldn't be able to tell if I was either white or black? But they could still say that they had a black cheerleader at the time. She was our first black cheerleader. The next one was Bernadette Canada and my first cousin, Emily Banks. Of course, we were glad. We felt like that when we got our first black cheerleader, then we could talk to the cheerleaders. We didn't really associate or speak to the cheerleaders, even though they rode on the same bus with us. We felt like uh, it, it was a no-no. You know, it, it, it was a no-no. But then when we got Sandra Williams, our first cheerleader, then we felt a part of the team. Even though before that they would make cheers and they would call out players' name, it really didn't mean nothing because that was just, as you say, a job. A responsibility. But when Sandra came on, they would work together and they called out the names of the players. That made that made you feel feel better. It it did. You know, it, it really did. You know, it just takes one to make a difference. And then there was the story of the black football players who played for Du Bois High School who were doubtful that they wanted to play football with the white guys. Jack Spadaro. So they went to Mr. Smith and said, we have our doubts of playing football with these white guys. And Smith said, well, give them a chance and see how they are. <laughs> so, so they bought into it, and they immediately, within two years, Mount Hope had championship football teams. 
the thing about the Mustangs I adore. You can knock them down, but they'll be back for more. They might black an eye or bust a lid, but they'll be home with the championship. I can't wait. Mighty Mustang. If a white one don't get you, then a black one will. The spirit of the Mustangs with us still. You know, we won the state championship in 1960, 61, and 62. And without integrating, we would have never won those state championships. Lonnie Warwick grew up in the coal camps surrounding Mount Hope. His father, a coal miner, worked with other miners of diverse origins. They were Union brothers who watched each other's backs underground. Lonnie knew them all and played with their kids through his growing up years. His dad died in a car wreck when Lonnie was only 10. He came quickly to understand that his only chance at a college education was a football scholarship. His chances were greatly boosted after integration. Man, when those black athletes came, they fit right in, you know. They made a difference. We needed a couple good offensive linemen, a couple good running backs, and we found a great quarterback in Otha Payne. Revered quarterback Otha Payne, the Jackie Robinson of Coalfield football, is quick to pass along credit to his teammates. I could not run the ball if that blocker didn't block. So I'm only as good as the blockers in front of me. I was no better than they were. I may have gotten more recognition only because I ran the ball or I handed the ball off to someone else who ran the ball. But the guys in the trenches was the ones that counted. Golly, Neds, we would have never won those state championships without integrating. And, of course, we knew each other because we played together with each other in, in the coal camps, you know, in Oswald, Tamroy, Callaway, Glenn Jean. You know, I knew all these guys. Jack Spadero. And so from that time on, in the sports world, in the school, in football and basketball and track, we were one and the same. Dennis Keffer. We would start 1st of August. I believe, didn't we, Jack? It was all hot. My goodness, it was hot. I thought I was going to die. I think we all did because they'd run us. And then they wouldn't give you water. You was up for two or two and a half hours without any water. And it's a wonder they hadn't killed us because they would give you handfuls of salt pills. They thought that's what, because you're sweating, they thought you needed salt pills. <laughs> they would make you take them, wouldn't they, John? Jerry Adams. We had success. I won't go into too much detail there, but except that I was captain of the defensive team, so I became more involved with hitting people than running. And I think it started way back in those days when I started getting beat up with the other running backs. So we had very good ball teams my junior and senior year. We went to the state championship. We were about half and half, half white and about half black or color on the squad. Lonnie Warwick, like Sam Pugh and others, looked at the black families in the cold camps all around him as extended family and was as comfortable sharing a meal at their home as he was inviting them to his own table. Through college play at the University of Tennessee and later as a national football hero with the Minnesota Vikings, he became an activist for racial harmony in the NFL. It began with his mother's invitations to all his Mount Hope teammates to join in pregame meals. Before the game that night, they'd walk up his street to my house and kill site. 
My mom had dinner ready. She had enough for Lorenzo Ross, Howard Griffith, Johnny Mayo. Come on in here. We'll sit right down here, boys. And your mom would feed them. Or if they had a ride to go to Glen Jean, you'd get in the car with them and go to their house and eat and stay with them until game time to come back. That's the way it was. After you get through eating, let's get out here on the porch. Got a place to lay down. Rest up for the night. Got to be ready for Oak Hill. Woodrow Relson or Beckley, you got to beat him. We are the Mustangs, the mighty, mighty Mustangs. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are. So we tell them. Jack Spadaro's father, also Jack Spadaro, maintained the locker room facilities where the team dressed. He was far more than a mere janitor, however. When we came to that gym, Jack was our father, and he treated us with respect. Charles McKinney. When we did wrong, he chastised us. When we did right, he praised us. So sports opened up my mind and made me the type of athlete that I was. Baby Charles was a great athlete. I was kind of big. I weighed about 160 pounds in junior high school, so they put me on the line. I played line, and I played linebacker. I could outrun everybody on the football team. But what happened was we played Hinton, and I think this guy had about a 30-yard start, and I caught him before he scored a touchdown. And the next day I went to practice, the coach told me, say, no, I don't want you to be a lineman. You're going to be a halfback. And that's how I got to move up to halfback. And I was good. I played halfback, and I played linebacker football team, we kind of like stayed together because it was a purpose. And the purpose was to become winners because, see, I thought that I had to be different, I had to be better, you know, so that I could get some recognition. And by winning and playing on the football team, it, it made that way. Sam Pugh. A lot of times we would go away on a football game or something like that, and we were criticized. They said we were, you know, all these blacks and stuff like that, and we just laughed about it. We, we thought it was funny because we got along and just had a rip-roaring good time, and we always had a good team. Mount Hope was a well-noted football school, and we whipped a lot of rear ends across the state. Dennis Keffer. We went to Ripley and played Ripley High School when we were seniors. We knew that whoever won that game would be in the state championship. Sam Pugh. The crowd... They about beat the crap out of all of us with bats and, oh, it was terrible because of who we were. The Mount Hope Mustangs, we had black kids and white kids. They were all white, they didn't like us. And the parents, I mean, when we run out on the field, it was, we had never experienced anything like that. And they scored first, they kicked the field goal in the first half, it was three to nothing. Dennis Keffer. And in the second half, they lined up on some kind of defense. I was the center, and when they were spread real wide in front of me like that, the quarterback would call Keffer, and they knew it was going right up the middle behind me. And that happened, and baby Charles got the ball. And As I was running the 60-yard touchdown, I looked on the side, and it was a white guy running along up on the side here, like hollering, catch that nigga, catch that nigga. And he didn't realize what he was doing was making me go fast. 
because I was scared. The more he said that, the faster I went. Wasn't nobody going to catch me. <laughs> and I can attest to it because I was running right beside him and behind him up through there because there was nobody to block. I was just run, running with him. Charlie told me he was actually afraid up there. Sam Pugh. Coming off the field was the same thing. But they said, leave your uniforms on, get on the bus, get out of there. And that's what we did. We got on Greyhound and headed south, still had the uniforms and everything on. And I don't know what we left up there, but it didn't mean nothing because we weren't going back to get it. But uh, that's, that's the way most schools felt about little old Mount Hope. Linda Pugh. I know how we were treated when we went to play sports by other schools. It wasn't me personally, it was more against the, the boys, you know, the name calling and rock throwing at the buses and things like that. Gee, man, hey, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. They were serious. They hurt people. And then we beat them about three points. Oh, gosh. That's why they said, get on the bus, leave your helmets, uniforms on, and get out of here. That was scary to have the rocks being thrown at the bus, you know, hoping that you're not going to get hit, you know, at the window. Sandra Williams. I took it to be that they were throwing rocks because they didn't like the team because we were winners. It could be that they were upset because we had a integrated cheerleading team as well as football team. I can't wait. If a white one don't get you, then a black one will. The spirit of the Mustangs with us still. When I came to the football field with Jack and Jerry and all the guys, we all were the same. Charles McKinney. And we took that same camaraderie, and wherever we went together, we were always one. You know, and that stuck with me. We became a tribe. Jack Spadero. When we had football games, we had to walk a mile from the gymnasium where we put our clothes on to the football field, which is like an old castle. I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but it looks like a castle and surrounded by these stone walls. So we would start at the gymnasium with these chants led by Charles McKinney. And we would march from the gym to the football field, and we chanted all the way. We had chants. What do you say? And they would say all the way. We are the Mustangs, the mighty, mighty Mustangs. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are. So we tell them, we are the Mustangs, mighty, mighty Mustangs. And we get into a kind of frenzy almost. You know, it was kind of fearsome for the other teams to hear. <laughs> and we were marching in time, you know. With those cleats walking on the pavement, man, it sounded like it was a herd of wild animals. <laughs> I was captain, along with Charles McKinney, and I came from a long line of football players. I think I had four uncles who were football players, and then my father, who all came to every game that I played. And if I made a mistake, they told me about it the next morning. <laughs> it was part of it. Brenda Troitino. 
Mount Hope had a history of producing running backs. They just it just happened. Lonnie Warwick. You know, my senior year, we played six triple A schools. We were double A. And we beat all six triple A schools that year. Sam Pugh. A lot of them would say, oh, it's because they have the black. It was one of the first times, I guess, that any of the schools really, uh, we showed the ability to be black and white that worked together. Lonnie Warwick. We beat Woodrow, Oak Hill. Man, we beat the Bluefield. We beat all of them. We were a good team. Had good players, you know, had real good players. Sam Pugh. We knew our skin was a different color, but we were still like brothers. Mickey Plumley. The concepts of how you live your life, as taught by Gene Spadaro and other coaches that I've had, are just tremendous. Brenda Torretino. Gene Spadaro, who's a legendary track coach in the state of West Virginia, he was coach of the year a number of years ago. He has taught all of these young men, whether he was their track coach or their football coach or their basketball coach, he taught them more than the sport. He taught them life lessons, how you work together to achieve what you want in life. Mickey Plumley. One of the things he used to say was, Plumley, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You conceive something in your mind, and then you put a plan in action to make that come true. So the plan that I put in action was rededicate myself to high school football find a way to get a college scholarship, which I was fortunate enough to do. I had a full scholarship offer from West Virginia University. I think it's the working together. Brenda Torretino. There's that old saying, there is no I in team, and that's always been the way it was here. Everybody worked together. Each player knew what his job was. They were fabulous athletes, all of them, every one of them, black and white together. And they had one thing on their mind, winning that football game. And that's what they did. They worked together as a team. Each of them had their strengths, and they pulled together, and they made this town very proud because we had a lot of championship teams. Think about the Mustangs, you'll find out they can move that ball without a doubt. Like a pack of wild animals on the field, and a defense team that will not yield. Look at that ball, mighty Mustang. The action on the field used to give us all the thrill. The spirit of the Mustangs with us still. Now Jack played defensive end. I played right behind Jack. Jack's responsibility was not to let the halfback get on his outside. His job was to turn him into me. And once he turned him into me, it was my responsibility to make that tackle. And Jack, as you notice, Jack was small, but he had the heart of a lion. But I liked playing behind Jack, and that's what got me and Jack closer together. And see, this is what sports do. It, it lets you know, you do your job, I, I'm going to do my job. And that brings camaraderie. It brings togetherness like that.
So we talk about that. Now, when we have reunions, we have a town reunion every year, and Charles McKinney and, and others who are on the team and I get together, and we talk about race, and we talk about what happened and how it, how it was overall pretty good. Charles McKinney. We looked up to all of the athletes that paved the way for us. Otha Payne, John Mayo, Ted Spadario, Ron Taylor, Sylvester Nyland. We felt like that when they left as winners, it was our responsibility to take that baton, to take that football, and carry it on. And we did that. There was no if and and buts about it. Winning has no color. It takes a team, and we were all black and white, and we knew what we were supposed to do, and we performed. And we loved one another. When I say love, we love one another. And if any one of us would get in any type of trouble, I believe in my heart that we had one another's back. You've been listening to Game Changer, the story of a racially integrated football team at Mount Hope High School, told by alumni from the 1950s to 70s. Based on 40 interviews recorded by Talking Across the Lines, LLC, this program was written and produced by Michael and Kerry Klein with O.H. Jackson Napier. The Mighty Mustang song was composed and performed by Michael Klein. Original guitar and violin music by Dan Frechette and Laurel Thompson at danandlaurel.ca and laurelthompson.com. 12 Gates to the City was performed by the Travelers of Shiloh Methodist Church, Newburgh, Maryland. Nathan Shelton sang Stand By Me by Ben E. King and blew some blues riffs on the harmonica. Marching band music was played by the Breathitt County High School Band of Pride in Jackson, Kentucky, the South Point High School Band from Belmont, North Carolina, and Elkins High School Band in Elkins, West Virginia. Executive producers are Reverend Charles McKinney and Jack Spadero. The Mount Hope Heritage Center, with directors Brenda Troitino and Tom Brown, and the Du Bois on Main Museum in Mount Hope, with director Gene Evansmore, provided research assistance. Special thanks for tactical as well as moral support to Jerry Adams. Support for this program came from the Mountain of Hope Organization, Incorporated, and the West Virginia Humanities Council, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations do not necessarily represent those of the West Virginia Humanities Council or the National Endowment for the Humanities. The original recorded interviews, photos, and other documentation are archived at the West Virginia State Archives at the Culture Center in Charleston, West Virginia. For Hope, I'm Michael Klein. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, a radio documentary produced by Michael and Carrie Klein. They'd like to hear from you. Please let them know what you thought of Game Changer by calling 304-636-5444 or emailing klein at folktalk.org. That's K-L-I-N-E at folktalk.org. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of Mountain Talk again, you can find them on our website, 
www.wmmt.org or download them as a podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening.